0: Hey y'all, this week it is Valentine's Day, so in honor of this, I will be sharing some mythological stories related to love, romance, and the myth of Cupid and Psyche. These stories come from a book called Mythology, written by Edith Hamilton, and you guys are in for a treat. I hope y'all enjoy. Chapter 1, Cupid and Psyche. This story is told only by Apuleius, a Latin writer of the 2nd century A.D., The Latin names of the gods are therefore used. It is a prettily told tale, after the manner of Ovid. The writer is entertained by what he writes. He believes none of it. There was once a king who had three daughters, all lovely maidens, but the youngest, Psyche, excelled her sister so greatly that besides them she seemed a very goddess, consorting with mere mortals. The fame of her surpassing beauty spread over the earth, and everywhere men journeyed to gaze upon her with wonder and adoration, and to do her homage as though she were in truth one of the immortals. They would even say that Venus herself could not equal this mortal. As they thronged in ever growing numbers to worship her loveliness, no one any more gave a thought to Venus herself. Her temples were neglected, her altars foul with cold ashes, her favorite towns deserted and falling in ruins. All the honors once hers were now given to a mere girl destined some day to die. It may well be believed that the goddess would not put up with this treatment. As always, when she was in trouble, she turned for help to her son, that beautiful winged youth whom some call Cupid and others love, against whose arrows there is no defense, neither in heaven nor on earth. She told him her wrongs, and as always he was ready to do her bidding. Use your power, she said, and make the hussy fall madly in love with the vilest and most despicable creature there is in the whole world. And so no doubt he would have done. If Venus had not first shown him Psyche, never thinking in her jealous rage what such a beauty might do even to the god of love himself. As he looked upon her, it was as if he had shot one of his arrows into his own heart. He said nothing to his mother, indeed, he had no power to utter a word, and Venus left him with the happy confidence that he would swiftly bring about Psyche's ruin. What happened, however, was not what she had counted on. Psyche did not fall in love with a horrible wretch, she did not fall in love at all. Still more strange. No one fell in love with her. Men were content to look and wonder and worship, and then pass on to marry someone else. Both her sisters, inexpressibly inferior to her, were splendidly married, each to a king. Psyche, the all-beautiful, sat sad and solitary, only admired, never loved. It seemed that no man wanted her. This was, of course, most disturbing to her parents. Her father finally traveled to an oracle of Apollo to ask his advice on how to get her a good husband. The god answered him, but his words were terrible. Cupid had told him the whole story and had begged for his help. Accordingly, Apollo said that Psyche, dressed in deepest mourning, must be set on the summit of a rocky hill and left alone, and that there her destined husband, a fearful winged serpent, stronger than the gods themselves, would come to her and make her his wife. The misery of all when Psyche's father brought back this lamentable news can be imagined. They dressed the maiden as though for her death— and carried her to the hill with greater sorrow than if she had been to her tomb. But Psyche herself kept her courage. You should have wept for me before, she told them, because of the beauty that has drawn down upon me the jealousy of heaven. Now go, knowing that I am glad the end has come. They went in despairing grief, leaving the lovely helpless creature to meet her doom alone, and they shut themselves in their palace to mourn all their days for her. On the high hilltop in the darkness Psyche sat, waiting for she knew not what terror— There, as she wept and trembled, a soft breath of air came through the stillness to her, the gentle breathing of zephyr, sweetest and mildest of winds. She felt it lifting her up. She was floating away from the rocky hill and down until she lay upon a grassy meadow soft as a bed and fragrant with flowers. It was so peaceful there. All her trouble left her and she slept. She woke beside a bright river, and on its bank was a mansion stately and beautiful, as though built for a god with pillars of gold and walls of silver and floors inlaid with precious stones. No sound was to be heard. The place seemed deserted, and Psyche drew near, awestruck at the sight of such splendor. As she hesitated on the threshold, voices sounded in her ear. She could see no one, but the words they spoke came clearly to her. The house was for her, they told her. She must enter without fear and bathe and refresh herself. Then a banquet table would be spread for her. We are your servants, the voices said, ready to do whatever you desire. The bath was the most delightful, the food the most delicious she had ever enjoyed. While she dined, sweet music breathed around her. A great choir seemed to sing to a harp, but she could only hear, not see them. Throughout the day, except for the strange companionship of the voices, she was alone. But in some inexplicable way, she felt sure that with the coming of the night her husband would be with her. And so it happened. When she felt him beside her and heard his voice softly murmuring in her ear, all her fears left her. She knew without seeing him that there was no monster or shape of terror, but the lover and husband she had longed and waited for. This half-and-half companionship could not fully content her. Still, she was happy, and the time passed swiftly. One night, however, her dear though unseen husband spoke gravely to her and warned her that danger in the shape of her two sisters was approaching. "'They are coming to the hill where you disappeared, to weep for you,' he said." but you must not let them see you, or you will bring great sorrow upon me and ruin to yourself. She promised him she would not, but all the next day she passed in weeping, thinking of her sisters and herself unable to confront them. She was still in tears when her husband came, and even his caresses could not check them. At last he yielded sorrowfully to her great desire. Do what you will, he said, but you are seeking your own destruction. Then he warned her solemnly not to be persuaded by anyone to try to see him, On pain of being separated from him forever psyche cried out that she would never do so she would die a hundred times over rather than live without him but give me this joy she said to see my sisters sadly he promised her that it should be so the next morning the two came brought down from the mountain by zephyr happy and excited psyche was waiting for them it was long before the three could speak to each other their joy was too great to be expressed except by tears and embraces but when at last they entered the palace and the elder sisters saw its surpassing treasures, when they sat at the rich banquet and heard the marvellous music, bitter envy took possession of them and a devouring curiosity as to who was the lord of all this magnificence and their sister's husband. But Psyche kept faith. She had told them only that he was a young man, away now on a hunting expedition. Then, filling their hands with gold and jewels, she had Zephyr bear them back to the hill. They went willingly enough, but their hearts were on fire with jealousy. All their own wealth and good fortune seemed to them as nothing compared with Psyche's, and their envious anger so worked in them that they came finally to plotting on how to ruin her. That very night, Psyche's husband warned her once more. She would not listen when he begged her not to let them come again. She never could see him, she reminded him. Was she also to be per- forbidden to see all others, even her sisters so dear to her? He yielded as before, and very soon the two wicked women arrived with their plot carefully worked out. Already, because of Psyche's stumbling and contradictory answers when they asked her what her husband looked like, they had become convinced that she had never set eyes on him and did not really know what he was. They did not tell her this, but they reproached her for hiding her terrible state from them, her own sisters. They had learned, they said, and knew for a fact that her husband was not a man, but the fearful serpent's Apollo Oracle had declared he would be. He was kind now, no doubt, but he would certainly turn upon her some night and devour her psyche aghast felt terror flooding her heart instead of love she had wondered so often why he would never let her see him there must be some dreadful reason what did she really know about him if he was not horrible to look at then he was cruel to forbid her ever to behold him in extreme misery faltering and stammering she gave her sisters to understand that she could not deny what they said because she had been with him only in the dark there must be something very wrong she sobbed, for him so to shun the light of day and she begged them to advise her they had their advice all prepared beforehand that night she must hide a sharp knife and a lamp near her bed when her husband was fast asleep she must leave the bed light the lamp and get the knife she must steal herself to plunge it swiftly into the body of the frightful being the light would certainly show her we will be near they said and carry you away with us when he is dead then they left her torn by doubt and distracted what to do she loved him He was her dear husband. No, he was a horrible serpent, and she loathed him. She would kill him. She would not. She must have certainty. She did not want certainty. So all day long her thoughts fought with each other. When evening came, however, she had given the struggle up. One thing she was determined to do, she would see him. When at last he lay sleeping quietly, she summoned all her courage and lit the lamp. She tiptoed to the bed, and holding the light high above her, she gazed at what lay there. Oh, the relief and the rapture that filled her heart. No monster was revealed, but the sweetest and fairest of all creatures, at whose sight the very lamp seemed to shine brighter. In her first shame, at her folly, and lack of faith, Psyche fell on her knees and would have plunged the knife into her own breast if it had not fallen from her trembling hands. But those same unsteady hands that saved her betrayed her too, for as she hung over him, Ravished at the sight of him, and unable to deny herself the bliss of filling her eyes with this beauty, some hot oil fell from the lamp upon his shoulder. He startled awake. He saw the light and knew her faithlessness, and without a word, he fled from her. She rushed out after him into the night. She could not see him, but she heard his voice speaking to her. He told her who he was, and sadly bade her farewell. "'Love cannot live where there is no trust,' he said, and flew away. "'The God of love,' she thought. "'He was my husband,' and I, wretched that I am, could not keep faith with him. Is he gone from me forever? At any rate, she told herself with rising courage, I could spend the rest of my life searching for him. If he has no more love left for me, at least I can show him how much I love him. And she started on her journey. She had no idea where to go. She knew only that she would never give up looking for him. He meanwhile had gone to his mother's chamber to have his wound cared for. But when Venus heard his story and learned that it was Psyche whom he had chosen— She left him angrily alone in his pain, and went forth to find the girl of whom he had made her still more jealous. Venus was determined to show Psyche what it meant to draw down the displeasure of a goddess. Poor Psyche, in her despairing wanderings, was trying to win the gods over to her side. She offered ardent prayers to make them perpetually, but not one of them would do anything to make Venus their enemy. At last she perceived that there was no hope for her, either in heaven or on earth, and she took a desperate resolve. She would go straight to Venus, She would offer herself humbly to her as her servant and try to soften her anger. And who knows, she thought, if he himself is not there in his mother's house. So she set forth to find the goddess who was looking everywhere for her. When she came into Venus's presence, the goddess laughed aloud and asked her scornfully if she was seeking a husband since the one she had had would had nothing to do with her because he had almost died of the burning wound she had given him. But really, she said, you are so plain and ill-favored a girl that you will never be able to get you a lover except by the most diligent and painful service. I will therefore show my goodwill to you by training you in such ways. With that, she took a great quantity of the smallest of seeds, wheat and poppy and millet and so on, and mixed them all together in a heap. By nightfall, these must all be sorted, she said. See to it for your own sake. And with that, she departed. Psyche, left alone, sat still and stared at the heap. Her mind was all in amaze because of the cruelty of the commands, and indeed, it was of no use to start a task so manifestly impossible. But at this direful moment, she who had awakened no compassion in mortals or immortals was pitied by the tiniest creatures of the fields, the little ants, the swift runners. They cried to each other, come, have mercy on this poor maid and help her diligently. At once they came, waves of them, one after another, and they labored separating and dividing until what had been a confused mass lay all ordered, every seed with its kind. This was what Venus found when she came back, and was very angry, she was, to see it. "'Your work is by no means over,' she said. Then she gave Psyche a crust of bread and bade her sleep on the ground while she herself went off to a soft, fragrant couch. Surely if she could keep the girl at hard labor and half-starve her, too, that hateful beauty of hers would soon be lost. Until then, she must see that her son was securely guarded in his chamber— where he was still suffering from his wound venus was pleased at the way matters were shaping the next morning she devised another task for her psyche this time a dangerous one down there near the riverbank she said where the bushes grow thick are sheep with fleeces of gold go fetch me some of their shining wool when the worn girl reached the gently flowing stream a great longing seized her to throw herself into it and end all her pain and despair But as she was bending over the water, she heard a little voice from near her feet, and looked down, saw that it came from a green reed. She must not drown herself, it said. Things were not as bad as that. The sheep were indeed very fierce, but if Psyche would wait until they came out of the bushes toward evening to rest beside the river, she could go into the thicket and find plenty of the golden wool hanging on the sharp briars. So spoke the kind and gentle reed, and Psyche, following the directions, was able to carry back to her cruel mistress a quantity of the shining fleece, Venus received it with an evil smile. Someone helped you, she said sharply. Never did you do this by yourself. However, I will give you an opportunity to prove that you really have the stout heart and the singular prudence you make such a show of. Do you see that black water which falls from the hills yonder? It is the source of the terrible river which is called Hateful. The river sticks. You are to fill this flask from it. That was the worst task yet. A psyche saw when she approached the waterfall. Only a winged creature could reach it. So steep and slimy were the rocks on all sides, and so fearful the onrush of the descending waters. But by this time it must be evident to all the readers of the story, as perhaps deep in her heart it had become evident to Psyche herself, that although each of her trials seemed impossibly hard, an excellent way out would always be provided for her. This time her savior was an eagle, who poised on his great wings beside her, seized the flask from her with his beak, and brought it back to her, full of black water. But Venus kept on, One cannot but accuse her of some stupidity. The only effect of all that had happened was to make her try again. She gave Psyche a box which she was to carry to the underworld and ask Persephone to fill with some of her beauty. She was to tell her that Venus really needed it. She was so worn out from nursing her sick son. Obediently as always, Psyche went forth to look for the road to Hades. She found her guide in a tower she passed. It gave her careful directions how to get to Persephone's palace. First through a great hole in the earth then down to the river of death, where she must give the ferryman, Charon, a penny to take her across. From there the road led straight to the palace. Cerberus, the three-headed dog, guarded the doors, but if she gave him a cake, he would be friendly and let her pass. All happened, of course, as the tower had foretold. Persephone was willing to do Venus a service, and Psyche, greatly encouraged, bore back the box, returning far more quickly than she had gone down her next trial she brought upon herself through her curiosity and still more her vanity she felt that she must see what that beautiful charm in the box was and perhaps use a little of it herself she knew quite well as venus did that her looks were not improved by what she had gone through and always in her mind was the thought that she might suddenly meet cupid if only she could make herself more lovely for him she was unable to resist the temptation she opened the box to her sharp disappointment she saw nothing there it seemed empty Immediately, however, a deadly languor took possession of her and she fell into a heavy sleep. At this juncture, the god of love himself stepped forward. Cupid was healed of his wound by now and longing for Psyche. It is a difficult matter to keep love imprisoned. Venus had locked the door, but there were windows. All Cupid had to do was to fly out and start looking for his wife. She was lying almost beside the palace, and he found her once. In a moment, he had wiped the sleep from her eyes and put it back into the box Then, waking her with just a prick from one of his arrows, and scolding her a little for her curiosity, he bade her take Persephone's box to his mother, and he assured her that all thereafter would be well. While the joyful Psyche hastened on her errands, the god flew up to Olympus. He wanted to make certain that Venus would give them no more trouble, so he went straight to Jupiter himself. The father of gods and men consented at once to all that Cupid asked. Even though he said, You have done me great harm in the past, seriously injured my good name and my dignity by making me change myself into a bull and swan and so on. However, I cannot refuse you. Then he called a full assembly of the gods and announced to all, including Venus, that Cupid and Psyche were formally married and that he proposed to bestow immortality upon the bride. Mercury brought Psyche into the palace of the gods and Jupiter himself gave her the ambrosia to taste, which made her immortal. This, of course, completely changed the situation. Venus could not object to a goddess for her daughter-in-law. The alliance had become eminently suitable. No doubt she reflected also that Psyche, living up in heaven with a husband and children to care for, could not be much on the earth to turn men's heads and interfere with her own worship. So all came to a most happy end. Love and the soul, for that is what Psyche means, had sought and after sore trials found each other, and that union could never be broken. Now we get into Tales of Lovers. The first is Pyramus and Thisbe. This story is found only in Ovid. It is quite characteristic of him at his best. Well told, several rhetorical monologues, a little essay on love, by the way. Once upon a time, the deep red berries of the mulberry tree were white as snow. The changing color came about strangely and sadly. The death of two young lovers was the cause. Pyramus and Thisbe. He, the most beautiful youth, and she, the loveliest maiden of all the east, lived in Babylon, the city of Queen Semiramis houses so close together that one wall was common to both growing up thus side by side they learned to love each other they longed to marry but their parents forbade love however cannot be forbidden the more that flame is covered up the hotter it burns also love can always find a way it was impossible that these two whose hearts were on fire should be kept apart in the wall both houses shared there was a little chink no one before had noticed it but there is nothing a lover does not notice Our two young people discovered it, and through it they were able to whisper sweetly back and forth, Thisbe on one side, Pyramus on the other. The hateful wall which separated them had become their means of reaching each other. But for you we could touch and kiss, they would say, but at least you let us speak together. You give a passage for loving words to reach loving ears. We are not ungrateful. So they would talk, and as night came on, and they must part. Each would press on the wall kisses that could not go through to the lips of the other side. Every morning when the dawn had put out the stars and the sun's rays had dried the hoarfrost on the grass, they would steal to the crack and standing there, now utter words of burning love and now lament their hard fate, but always in the softest whispers. Finally a day came when they could endure no longer. They decided that that very night they would try to slip away and steal out through the city into the open country where at last they could be together in freedom. They agreed to meet at a well-known place, the tomb of Ninni, under a tree, there, a tall mulberry full of snow-white berries, near which a cool spring bubbled up. The plan pleased them, and it seemed to them the day would never end. At last, the sun sank into the sea, and night arose in the darkness. Thisbe crept out and made her way in all secrecy to the tomb. Pyramus had not come still she waited for him, her love making her bold, but of a sudden she saw by the light of the moon a lioness, the fierce beast had made a kill. Her jaws were bloody, and she was coming to slake their thirst in the spring. She was still far away for Thisbe to escape, but as she fled, she dropped her cloak. The lioness came upon it on her way back to the lair, and she mouthed it and tore it before disappearing into the woods. That is what Pyramus saw when he appeared a few minutes later. Before him lay the blood-stained shreds of the cloak, and clear in the dust were the tracks of the lioness. The conclusion was inevitable. He never doubted that he knew all. Thisbe was dead. He had let his love a tender maiden come alone to a place full of danger and not been there first to protect her it is i who killed you he said he lifted up from the trampled dust what was left of the cloak and kissing it again and again carried it to the mulberry tree now he said you shall drink my blood too he drew his sword and plunged it into his side the blood spurted up over the berries and dyed them dark red Thisbe, although terrified of the lioness was still more afraid to fail her lover She ventured to go back to the tree of the tryst, the mulberry with the shining white fruit. She could not find it. A tree was there, but not one gleam of white was on the branches. As she stared at it, something moved on the ground beneath. She started back shuddering, but in a moment, peering through the shadows, she saw what was there. It was Pyramus, bathed in blood and dying. She flew to him and threw her arms around him. She kissed his cold lips and begged him to look at her, to speak to her. It is I, your Thisbe, your dearest, she cried to him. At the sound of her name, he opened his heavy eyes for one look. Then death closed them. She saw a sword fallen from his hand and beside it, her cloak stained and torn. She understood all. Your own hand killed you, she said, and your love for me. I too can be brave. I too can love. Only death would have the power to separate us. It shall not have that power now. She plunged into her heart the sword that was still wet with his life's blood. The gods were pitiful at the ends, and the lovers' parents too. The deep red fruit of the mulberry is the everlasting memorial of these true lovers, and one urn holds the ashes of the two whom not even death could part. Now, we journey to the story of Orpheus and Eurydice. The account of Orpheus with the Argonauts is told only by Apollonius of Rhodes, a 3rd century Greek poet. The rest of the story is told best by two Roman poets, Virgil and Ovid, in very much the same style. The Latin names of the gods are therefore used here. Apollonius influenced Virgil a good deal. Indeed, any one of the three might have written the entire story as it stands. The very earliest musicians were the gods. Athena was not distinguished in that line, but she invented the flute, although she never played upon it. Hermes made the lyre and gave it to Apollo, who drew from its sound so melodious that when he played in Olympus, the gods forgot all else. Hermes also made the shepherd pipe for himself and drew enchanting music from it. Pan made the pipe of reeds, which can sing as sweetly as the nightingale in spring. The muses had no instrument peculiar to them, but their voices were loved beyond compare. Next in order came a few mortals so excellent in their art that they almost equaled the divine performers. Of these, by far, the greatest was Orpheus. On his mother's side, he was more than mortal. He was the son of one of the muses and a Thracian prince. His mother gave him the gift of music, and Thrace, where he grew up, fostered it. The Thracians were the most musical of the peoples of Greece. But Orpheus had no rival there or anywhere except the gods alone. There was no limit to his power when he played and sang. No one and nothing could resist him. In the deep still woods upon the Thracian mountains, Orpheus with his singing lyre led the trees, led the wild beasts of the wilderness. Everything animate and inanimate followed him. He moved the rocks on the hillside and turned the course of the rivers. Little is told about his life before his ill-fated marriage, for which he is even better known than for his music, but he went on one famous expedition, and proved himself a most useful member of it. He sailed with Jason on the Argo, and when the heroes were wary, or the rowing was especially difficult, he would strike his lyre, and they would be aroused to fresh zeal, and their oars would smite the sea together in time to the melody, or if a quarrel threatened, he would play so tenderly and soothingly that the fiercest spirits would grow calm and forget their anger. He saved the heroes, too, from the sirens. When they heard far over the sea singing so enchantingly sweet that it drove out all other thoughts except a desperate longing to hear more, and they turned the ship to the shore where the sirens sat, Orpheus snatched up his lyre and played a tune so clear and ringing that it drowned the sound of those lovely, fatal voices. The ship was put back on her course, and the winds sped her away from that dangerous place. If Orpheus had not been there, the Argonauts, too, would have left their bones on the siren's island." Where he first met and how he wooed the maiden he loved, Eurydice we are not told, but it is clear that no maiden he wanted could have resisted the power of his song. They were married, but their joy was brief. Directly after the wedding, as the bride walked in the meadow with her bridesmaids, a viper stung her and she died. Orpheus' grief was overwhelming. He could not endure it. He determined to go down to the world of death and try to bring eurydice back. He said to himself, With my song, I will charm Demeter's daughter i will charm the lord of the dead moving their hearts with my melody i will bear her away from hades he dared more than any other man ever dared for his love he took the fearsome journey to the underworld there he struck his lyre and at the sound all that vast multitude were charmed to stillness the dog cerberus relaxed his guard the wheel of ixion stood motionless sisyphus sat at rest upon his stone tantalus forgot his thirst for the first time the faces of the dread goddesses the furies were wet with tears the ruler of Hades drew near to listen with his queen, Orpheus sang, O gods who rule the dark and silent world, to you all born of woman needs must come. All lovely things at last go down to you. You are the debtor who was always paid. A little while while we tarry up on earth, then we are yours forever and ever. But I seek one who came to you too soon. The bud was plucked before the flower bloomed. I tried to bear my loss, I could not bear it. Love was too strong, God. O king, you know. If that old man tell, the tale is true, how once the flower saw Persephone. Then weep again the sweet Eurydice, life's pattern that was taken from the loom too quickly. See, I ask a little thing, only that you will lend, not give, her to me. She shall be yours when her year span is full. No one under the spell of his voice could refuse him anything. He drew iron tears down Pluto's cheek and made hell grant what love did seek. They summoned Iridici and gave her to him but upon one condition, that he would not look back at her as she followed him, until they had reached the upper world. So the two passed through the great doors of Hades to the pass, which would break them out of darkness, climbing up and up. He knew that she must be just behind him, but he longed unutterable to give one glance to make sure, but now they were almost there. The blackness was turning gray. Now he had stepped out joyfully into the daylight. Then he turned to her. It was too soon. She was still in the cavern, He saw her in the dim light, and he held out his arms to clasp her, but on the instant she was gone. She had slipped back into the darkness. All he heard was one faint word, farewell. Desperately he tried to rush after her and follow her down, but he was not allowed. The gods would not consent to his entering the world of the dead a second time while he was still alive. He was forced to return to the earth alone in utter desolation. Then he forsook the company of men. He wandered through the wild solitudes of Thrace comfortless except for his lyre, playing, always playing, and the rocks and the rivers and the trees heard him gladly, his only companions. But at last a band of minutes came upon him. They were as frenzied as those who killed Pentheus so horribly. They slew the gentle musician, tearing him limb from limb, and flung the severed head into the swift river Herbrus. It was borne along past the river's mouth on the lesbian shore. Nor had it suffered any change from the sea when the muses found it and buried it in the sanctuary of the islands. His limbs they gathered and placed in a tomb at the foot of Mount Olympus. And there, to this day, the nightingales sing more sweetly than anywhere else. I hope y'all enjoyed these three tales. I certainly did. What I found most interesting about these stories are these common themes that we see in many movies and stories. Um, One of them reminded me a lot of Romeo and Juliet, where there's this great tragedy and they both end up dying for love. And the other classic story of going down into the underworld to save your lover is also another interesting uh, motif that's found in a lot of um, great stories. So I hope you guys have a happy Valentine's Day and find that love that you're seeking, whether it's from within or without. This has been the Story Hour.